Well, it's not by accident that your New Testament contains four Gospels, four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. This was not the product of some overzealous disciples who determined that one account was insufficient. But since God is the author of Scripture, we know that it was by His design that we have multiple testimonies of the same events and yet each gospel being unique in what it emphasizes. Now, if you have read through the four gospels, you recognize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. We call those the synoptic gospels. Soon means uh, same, and optic means to look. And so synoptic means to look the same. Matthew, Mark, and and Luke are very similar. They are all broadly chronological, but we find in Matthew's gospel, his is even more so. Matthew was much more focused on the series of events in the life of Jesus than were Mark and Luke. In fact, Matthew uses more time references than the other gospels, twice as many. If you want to know the order of events in the ministry of Jesus, you would go to Matthew. Matthew is also the one who records more of what Jesus said than the other two. Mark, on the other hand, emphasizes what Jesus did. Mark has been called the action gospel because it portrays the activity of Jesus as one who demonstrated who he was by what he did. So you open up Mark and you see that immediately Jesus goes to that place and does that and immediately he goes over here and does this and he heals lepers and he casts out demons and he he heals the paralytic and by the time you get to chapter 3, it is unmistakable that this is someone who is unlike anyone who has ever lived. He is the Son of God. So, if Matthew is saying, look what Jesus said, Mark is saying, look what Jesus did. And when you examine Luke, you find that he has a different emphasis also. Luke's gospel is often arranged by theme. He's not as focused on chronology as Matthew, nor activity as Mark. Luke emphasizes the coming kingdom by grouping certain teachings together to prove a point or to to make something more clear. So Luke will often place two or more teachings or events next to each other so that he can demonstrate some truth. For example, some months ago we saw the account of the prodigal son which is a young man who wastes his father's possessions. And what follows right after that is the parable of the unjust steward, which is about a man who wastes his master's possessions. And then what follows right after that is the rich man in Hades, which is a story about a man who wastes his own possessions. So each passage has its own individual focus, but they also have a theme that runs through them that has a similar idea that connects them all together. 
how our possessions relate to the kingdom of God might be the theme of that section. Now, whether these were taught in order by Jesus is irrelevant, at least according to Luke. He's not concerned about chronology. They're all important teachings, but they all have these overlapping ideas that connect them, and so Luke sets them side by side so that we can notice those things. Now, here in Luke 18, we see another theme develop, and this theme might be called the true recipients of the kingdom. So we have clustered together here three different accounts that all drive this same point home. The first is what we saw last week with the Pharisee and the tax collector. In this scene, there is a devout Pharisee who goes to the temple, and he is someone whom everyone would assume the kingdom belongs to. He's totally committed to his religion. He rehearses his good works and his devotion before God, confident that his good works and his devotion will gain him everlasting life. And we saw that this man was trusting in himself. He says, I did this, I did that, I am not like these others. Now, we discover through that lesson that this man does not belong to the kingdom of God. In fact, the one that does is the man standing near who has nothing to offer him. The sinner who recognizes he's guilty and he stands before God and he will not even look up to heaven, but he beats his breast and saying, Oh God, have mercy on me. Now, the passage following our text that we're going to look at, is the account of the rich young ruler. This is another deeply religious man. He's the leader of the synagogue. He has great wealth. He would be perceived by the people as blessed of God because of his wealth and because of his works. And yet, we will see in that account, when we get to it, he does not have the kingdom of God either. And so in verses 9 through 14, you have the Pharisee who's trusting in himself, saying, I did it. And in verses 18 through 30, which we will see next time, you have the rich young ruler who's trusting in himself, saying, I did it. And these two become examples of those who do not belong to the kingdom. To enter the kingdom does not look like the Pharisee in the first account, or look like the rich young ruler in the following account. But what you have sandwiched between these two accounts is this wonderful encounter that Jesus has with these children where he shows us who does belong to the kingdom. And so by arranging them in this way, Luke is answering the question, what kind of person is acceptable to God? What does entrance into the kingdom require? It's not the way of the Pharisee, which is self-righteousness. It's not the way of the rich young ruler, which is self-reliance. In fact, it's not the way anyone would expect at all. Let's look at our text together, starting in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. 
And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, at this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been in ministry for approximately three years. And so he has become very well known throughout Galilee and Judea. And there is no shortage of people who are coming out to hear him. No one has said the things he said. No one has done the things he's done. And so when Jesus appears at this time in his ministry, there are always crowds. In fact, we have seen times where Jesus has trouble getting from point A to point B because of the crowds. You remember that one encounter when people are pressing in around him and the woman who has an issue of blood touches the hem of his garment and Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter is absolutely dumbfounded that Jesus would wonder that because there were people pressing in all around him. So, there's no shortage of people when Jesus is traveling at this period of time. Now, this must have become a concern to the disciples because they are committed to the kingdom mandate and they want to make sure that the people who come to hear Jesus are not interfering with the mission. The work they are doing is of utmost importance, and their master's time is not to be wasted. And so, when these women bring their babies to Jesus to bless them, the disciples are having no part of this. Now, Luke doesn't say that they want Jesus to bless them. He just says to touch them, But when we compare Matthew and Mark, it becomes obvious that this is the point. Matthew's Gospel says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Mark says, And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So when Luke mentions that they brought their babies, that Jesus might touch them, it's very clear from the other accounts what it is they desire. Those hands that have performed countless miracles, that have healed lepers and that have uh, cured blindness, they want those hands placed on their children so that Jesus might pray. Now, this would be a Jewish custom going all the way back to Genesis 48. If you remember the patriarch Jacob, toward the end of his life when they were in Egypt, all of his sons gathered round, all of Joseph uh, Joseph and his sons gathered round, and Jacob would pronounce a blessing on every one of them. And this became a tradition that continued for many centuries. So it would not be uncommon for mothers to desire a rabbi to pray and bless their children. Now Luke uses the word for infants here or babies. Matthew and Mark use the broader term children. And so this gives us a more comprehensive picture of an age range here. We're talking weeks and months old to all the way to uh, older children. And as the women are coming, the disciples think that this is a waste of time. Now, to put the best possible spin on their attitude, 
Love believes all things. Let's hope that they had kingdom issues in mind. They're thinking Jesus is only here for a short time and He's preaching these eternal truths and getting this message out to the masses is the primary goal. And so dealing with trivialities like babies and children is to be avoided. At least this is how they're thinking, I imagine. I mean, what good could this produce? What kingdom need would this accomplish? To them, it's an unnecessary exercise which pulls Jesus away for more important tasks. But Jesus is not frustrated by their request. He does not share in His disciples' rebuke. He does not see it as time wasted. And what He says here surprises even those closest to Him. Verse 16, But Jesus called them to Him, saying, Let the children come to Me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, here Jesus uses the term children. I've already mentioned, Luke mentions babies. The other Gospels mention children. Jesus mentions children here. So we're talking a wide range. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the Gospel writers tell us besides women and children. So the the idea was this is 5,000 men He was feeding, and that's going to multiply if you add the women and children. So the same word here is covering the bundled up babies who are in their mother's arms or the older children who are standing by their side. The word does not designate a specific cutoff as far as number, but since boys were bar mitzvahed at age 13, according to the Mishnah, I would guess that when a child comes around that age, they begin to treat them more as an adult. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the law. And when a child is bar mitzvahed, they become accountable to the law. So the the Jews would recognize, okay, this, this child is old enough now, they are accountable to what God has said in His law. Now that's going to be an important point, I think, as we will see. But the picture here is that Jesus did not turn these little ones away, but He welcomed them. Now this would be consistent with all of the other accounts of His earthly life. No one was insignificant to Jesus. The rabbis in the first century saw children as unimportant, but Jesus welcomed them. In fact, if you consider all of the Gospel accounts, was there anyone He ever turned away? Was there anyone that Jesus refused? Yes, it's true He opposed the Pharisees. It's true He called them out on their distortion of the Word of God. He called them out on their hypocrisy. He challenged them. He called them to repentance. He rebuked them many times. But there's no record of Jesus turning anyone away because He did not have time for them. 
or treat them as if they didn't matter. This is true also when it comes to social norms. Jesus broke all kinds of taboos. Did Jesus turn anyone away because of their gender? Did He exclude those who came to Him because they were women? No. In fact, His own disciples, many of them, were women. Some of His best friends, we are told, were women, Mary and Martha. Jesus healed a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, and He pronounces her as a true believer. He welcomed them and was unconcerned about those social stigmas. How about ethnicity? Did Jesus ever exclude people because they were not Jews? No. He sat and talked with a Samaritan woman in John 4, telling her about everlasting life. He blessed a Gentile soldier by healing his servant, and in fact declares in front of a huge crowd of Jews that he has never seen such great faith, not even in all of Israel. How about class? Did Jesus exclude people who were not wealthy enough or healthy enough or acceptable enough to society? No. This is one who interacted with the greatest social outcasts in Israel. Lepers who healed the blind and the sick, who spent an entire evening Luke 4 tells us, healing all kinds of people of all kinds of diseases. He turned no one away. How about sinners? Did Jesus exclude people who were guilty of great sins? No. He received them all. Prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners were His typical entourage. So much so that the Pharisees accused him of being a sinner himself. They separated themselves from such people, but Jesus received them. So it should be no surprise that Jesus did not exclude based on age. Jesus welcomes babies, children, younger and older, and he blesses them and even takes them up in His arms. What a wonderful picture of godliness. Also made me think what a contrast to those evil men who under the guise of religion prey upon such vulnerable ones. What a great evil it is when those who claim to represent Christ wearing religious robes, will defile children behind closed quarters. They take these precious ones whom Jesus welcomed and they destroy them, even scarring them for life, even turning them away from Jesus. But Jesus welcomed them and He blessed them and He loved them. And it is a beautiful example of godliness. Godly people do not ignore children or dismiss them or treat them as unimportant. They matter to God and so they must matter to you.
Now, Jesus will go on to say something here that no one could have conceived of. Now, you have to remember his audience. Whenever you're reading the Gospels, you, part of your thinking as far as interpretation has to always keep his audience in mind. And the context in which Jesus is teaching is a Jewish society which is steeped in legalism. It was all about adherence to the law. Your performance and your obedience is what secured your place in God's kingdom. So conformity to the law was of the utmost important, uh, importance and the Pharisees were the primary example of this. Add to this if you were sick or if you were blind or if you were poor, that meant that God's displeasure was somehow upon you because you failed to please Him in some way. So this is the thinking of the first century Jew and with that view of God ingrained in them makes this saying of Jesus so surprising. Verse 16, But Jesus called them to Him saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now remember, Luke shows the Pharisee in the temple who everyone assumed had everlasting life because of his works. And then the scene after this, the rich young ruler who everyone will assume has everlasting life because of his works. And Jesus will turn both of them away in a sense. And in their place, he welcomes these children. And not only that, but he says the kingdom is theirs. So not only does Jesus not refuse them and think them to be a waste of his time, but he says that these children and those like them belong to the kingdom of God. It is for them. Now, this would have been an earth-shattering, upside-down idea in a very law-driven, performance-based community. Children? Why children? They can't do anything. They don't even know how to pray. They don't have any good works. They don't know the Bible. And that's exactly right. And that's exactly the point. They can't do anything. And so we discover children are the perfect illustration of members of the kingdom because they are the best illustration of the non-achieving. Children are the perfect illustration of those who are dependent and not self-reliant. Children are those who have not done anything or earned anything or deserve anything. The Pharisee had his list of works that he rehearsed, which he thought proved his worthiness before God. The rich young ruler, which we will see next time, had his adherence to the Ten Commandments, which he described to Jesus with great enthusiasm. But none of those things are what God requires for entrance into his kingdom. 
In fact, it's the opposite. We are to be like the tax collector who we saw last week, who had nothing to bring to God but a desire for forgiveness. Children are a picture of those who are totally dependent, and that is exactly what God requires. How dependent are human children? By comparison, watch a nature show sometimes. So you watch any nature show, and it's fascinating how adept babies in the animal kingdom are for survival. So you'll have a herd of zebra. And they herd together because it's safer for them, it's protection for them against predators, and you'll have a baby born into the midst of this herd, and within 20 seconds that baby zebra's already up on all four legs. And he's wobbling around a little bit. And within 20 minutes, he's running alongside the herd. Like 20 minutes. He's already like lockstep with the rest of the herd running away from the cheetah or lion or whatever. God made them in such a way that they literally hit the ground running. And they have to because they are surrounded by danger. They are surrounded by predators. They are being born into a savage environment where their lives are in danger from the moment they leave the womb. But human children are very different. A baby is born with 100% dependence on its mother, and if left unattended, will only survive a day, maybe two. In fact, in the ancient Roman culture, the head of the family would determine after the child is born if they would keep the child or not. And if for whatever reason the father refused the child, they would leave the child out to die of exposure. So it's like they wouldn't even have to do some grisly act to kill the child. They would just go abandon it somewhere and leave it outside because within a day or so it's going to die. That's how dependent babies are. But even as they grow older, what we would call toddlers... They're wholly dependent, they're unable to care for themselves, and apart from constant care, they would not survive very long. Even children as old as six or eight are a risk unto themselves. Would you leave a six-year-old at home by themselves? Okay, I'll be back in a few hours. No. There are so many ways that they could die. <laughs> I mean, they don't know anything. They're inadequate to handle all of the potential risks. And so children are like those who belong to the kingdom because to belong to the kingdom, you can't be self-sufficient. You have to be totally dependent, and that's the point Jesus makes here. You must be helpless before God. You must not be self-reliant. You must not be independent. Now, Jesus is not making the claim here that children belong to the kingdom because they are without sin. 
There may be an innocence there, but there is not a sinlessness there. And anyone who has been around a two or three year old for any amount of time recognizes that. We are all born inherently selfish. And some is natural, okay? Say a baby who cries out in the middle of the night because he needs food. He has a survival mechanism built in to where when the body needs to be fed, he's going to cry and cry and cry. But you get into one and two and three and you see this inherent selfishness, this anger, this temper, when they don't get the toy they want or they don't get the food that they want or they don't get to go to the place that they want. And all of a sudden there is this rage and there is this meltdown. And we as parents are constantly training them in obedience and in delayed gratification. Day after day, week after week, year after year. So Jesus is not saying that children are somehow innocent or sinless. But he is saying they have a disposition that is a quality that defines the people who belong to the kingdom of God. It is an absolute dependence. It is an absolute trust. It is an absolute helplessness. And having nothing to commend themselves to God, they become the perfect examples of what God wants. This means the gospel is not clean yourself up, start behaving yourself, and start coming to church, and then we will put you on some kind of probationary period to see how you do, and God is watching, and if you do all of these things correctly, then God will receive you. That, that is more in line with the religions of the world. The gospel, the good news, is that you are to surrender yourself, you are to lay down your attempts at self-justification, and you are not bringing your list to God, you are not bringing your efforts in as if that's going to get you into the kingdom, you have to leave it all behind. In fact, if you know the testimony of the Apostle Paul, that was his story. Paul had a strong religious resume. This is what he says in Philippians 3. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul thought, if anyone's getting in the kingdom, I am. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul was like the Pharisee in the temple in his past life. And he had his list. And he would have been right there with that other Pharisee reciting before God all of the things that he had done. But he had to become like the tax collector beating his breast and saying, I have nothing to offer you. He had to surrender all of his attempts at self-righteousness. Now, in the mid-1990s, the Lord was calling me and drawing me and, and stirring up my conscience. And my first thought was, I'm going to start doing things to please God. And so I would put certain things away for Lent, which were sins. I was, I'm going to stop sinning for Lent this year, Lord. And so for the period of 40 days or so, I felt pretty good about myself that I had stopped a particular sin for 40 days. But I did it for God, and God was noticing, and God was going to be happy with my meager little offering. And yet, it was only when I heard the gospel, the good news of the gospel, good news of great joy, that I realized that even my good works that I was bringing to God was sin. That what I was dragging to God as a guilty sinner before a holy God was garbage. I was piling up heaps of trash and trying to have that cleanse me. And it was only when I discovered that I have to come to Him empty-handed because He has provided for me the greatest gift of all, which is the substitution I need to be pleasing in His sight. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. It's the best news I ever heard. The Gospel. Look what Jesus says again in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So rather than children being excluded from the kingdom or kept away from Jesus because they have nothing to offer Him, Jesus says you must become like them if you want to enter it. The previous passage, the Pharisee says, I can do it. The following passage, the rich young ruler is going to say, I can do it. But the child of God, the recipient of the kingdom, must say, I can't do it. I can never do it. The child of God has an awareness that they can never meet God's standards and that they must be wholly dependent upon God's grace. They must recognize that heaven is not a reward for the righteous, but it is a gift for the guilty. It is to recognize that your works are insufficient in His sight and that your sin is so pervasive that it will keep you away from God forever. 
It is to recognize that you need a Savior. One who has completely satisfied the requirements of God on your behalf. It is to recognize that you must cast yourself wholly and completely upon the grace of God. Just as every child born into this world is helpless and dependent, so every child born into the kingdom is helpless and dependent. And there are no exceptions. If you envision standing before God someday and rehearsing your achievements as your primary means of entering His kingdom, and they could be good things, you gave faithfully, you read your Bible faithfully, you came to church faithfully, you prayed faithfully. If your idea of standing before God is a rehearsal of the things that you've done, you are going to be shocked on that day when you are cast out of His kingdom because what you were relying on was the things that you do rather than relying on the one that God has given that you might be saved. The Pharisee is a picture for us of one who rehearsed his works. The rich young ruler is going to be a picture for us next time of one who rehearses his works. And if your idea on that day is that you are going to rehearse your works, you are going to end up with the same fate as them. And so Luke helps us answer the question, who is fit for the kingdom of God? To whom does it belong? It belongs to those who are like little children, dependent, helpless, trusting. Now, does this describe you this evening? Does this describe your attitude toward the gospel, toward God, toward this thing, this religion that we practice? Does your attitude toward God, is it about Him and what He has done? Or is it about what you and you continue to strive to do, thinking that that is what is pleasing in His sight? The good news of great joy is that we can have Christ who is our perfect righteousness, given to our account, cannot be improved upon, cannot be added to. And we enter into relationship with Him. And when God sees us, He sees the perfection of His Son. And He looks at that person who is trusting in Christ. And He says, with her I am well pleased. With Him I am well pleased. Not because of you, but because of Him. I hope that is the message that you believe and proclaim today. Let's pray together. It is so wonderful. It is this thing that we celebrate at Christmas time. Why do we celebrate a baby born in Bethlehem? Because his perfection is given to the guilty who trust in him. Oh, my Father, I pray in Jesus' name there be none 
that are part of this church who believe that it is up to them. I pray that through all of our gospel saturation in this church that we pray and we sing and we preach that there would be none present here who think it is up to them. But Lord, that there would be a wonderful awakening of the marvelous grace that you offer us in Christ and that there would be an embracing of that grace by faith. And so Lord, we pray for this church. We pray, Lord, that this news would be so captivating to us, so wonderful to us that we cannot contain it and that we must proclaim it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.